as we hypergender impose all of this gender onto every aspect of childhood, you know, it became very difficult for a lot of kids to fit into either this hyper feminine or hyper masculine box. Is freedom from gender norms about identity and, and an individual way that you identify yourself or is freedom from gender norms about how we define what's masculine and feminine or how we design, define what's male and female. And there's real conflict there. Right, um, right. And it's, it's super difficult to talk about, but it is important that we do. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, a multi-generational conversation about leadership, power, gender, and justice through a female lens. I'm Ann Doyle. What do you think of when you hear the word tomboy? Does it bring back childhood memories of you playing football with the neighborhood boys and preferring to wear blue jeans and climb trees rather than wear pink and dress up as a princess? Does it make you think of a girl you grew up with who seemed a little different and hung out with the boys more than with the other girls? Or does it feel like an insult? As one of my brothers told me, he understood the word to be for a girl. Growing up in the 50s, I embraced the word because I thought being a tomboy was all about more possibilities. I had no problem being a girl, but I also wanted to do the things that my brothers did, especially outdoors. And when I was writing my book, Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders, I invented the word womaninity, and I wrote a whole chapter about it, because I always felt the word femininity was very narrow and doesn't capture the full sense of a woman comfortable with all of her capabilities and power. That's why I was fascinated when I discovered the new book, Tomboy, surprising history and future of girls who dare to be different. It has been described as a celebration and exploration of the tomboy phenomenon. And it is exploring the history of the changing attitudes today, the attitudes in the past, and the possibilities for the future of girls who defy social expectations based on their gender. Was that you? A friend of yours, a daughter, maybe a granddaughter. I'm thrilled to have as our guest, Lisa Selin Davis, an essayist, a novelist, and a journalist who has written for major publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Guardian, Time, Salon, and many others. And she's the author of this fascinating book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. Welcome, Lisa, joining us from Brooklyn, I believe. Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for that excellent description of the book. I'm You're hired for the marketing copywriting. <laughs> well, I loved it. I absolutely loved the book. And uh, it was much more than I imagined it would be. It was everything I hoped it would be. And then it took me into areas I really learned a lot about, which we're going to talk about. So let's start with... Um, Talking about this thought-provoking op-ed that you wrote several years ago for the New York Times about gender that not only went viral, it created an absolute uproar. 
so what were the major themes in that commentary and what was the uproar all about that it triggered? I imagine that was the impetus for you then going on and writing this book, right? Well, it was almost the impetus for me never touching this subject again. I think that was my initial reaction. <laughs> then when I got over the shock a bit, I thought, well, there must be something here if people are reacting that strongly. And there must right. be something, there must be a lot I don't understand. So I wrote this op-ed in 2017. And it should be said, I, I had written something in 2013 that I had actually completely forgotten about. And that, and that plays into the, um, to the uproar. So maybe I'll start there, which is in, in 2013, when my kid was four, I wrote an essay for Parenting Magazine. And, um, and it was about how I had this daughter who was not acting like the other girls. And it was all about grappling with that and being sort of proud of that and worried about that. And although my child had never said anything like, I'm a boy or I want to be a boy, I suppose at some point we interpreted it that way, in part because I had so little understanding of what boy stuff and girl stuff was, which is a lot of where the book goes. So I wrote this piece in 2013 and it was for Parenting Magazine and they titled it, My Daughter Wants to Be a Boy, even though she didn't really say that. No one cared. Like that was in 2013, people weren't arguing about this. Right. And I didn't give it another thought. And four years later, I wrote a different piece. And it was about, by then, it had been pr pretty clear that my child had no confusion or upset about her sex, but was expressing herself in a traditionally masculine way, you know, very consistently. And that adults were having a really hard time with it. Kids could adjust quickly. But adults were really intent on doing what I now know is called socially transitioning my child. I, I didn't know that term then or anything about that. And I knew it was out of kindness. And I knew it was that they had gone to kind of gender trainings. They assumed it was about gender identity. Be a little more specific about what they were doing. Well, this was before any kind of people were, you know, would ask everyone their gender pronouns, for instance. So they were always asking her, do you want a new name? Do you want a new pronoun? Do you want to change in the boys locker room? Do you, you know, they were facilitating. Is her this because of how she was dressing? Dressing and playing. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, most kids will play together. Boys and girls will play together until about age three. And this has to do with their kind of cognitive gender development. But then if they go to preschool and they're with a larger group of kids, you'll start to see that they're separating into sex groups or gender groups, depending on what you think those words mean, and, and, and often playing differently. And so when that happened, here I had this child who was right in the middle. And you know she was female, but she was playing a lot with the boys, the boys and the girls. And she would play princess, but she would be the royal dog. And so she was different from all the other girls. And she was, of course, different from all the other boys. And this never caused her any trouble. I mean, it never internally. But the adults, you know, here was a child who was exceptional in some way. And, you know, they, they were doing this thing that was on the one hand so kind, like offering to facilitate her social transition. But the message became, you're not okay the way you are. 
And right. you can't be a girl and be like that. And so right. I was like homing in on that and exploring that. And I wrote this op-ed that was kind of like, absolutely, let's support trans kids, but let's not tell girls that they have to be feminine to be girls. So what was the backlash that you got? So I'd written this op-ed, it was published in the New York Times and their headline, again, journalists don't get to write their own headlines. So this right. is a problem. The headline was, my daughter is not transgender, she's a tomboy. And the problem with that headline is, I never called her a tomboy. I, I had no special name for her. I was okay with just girl as her biological category and that she didn't act like most of the other girls. And one of the things I talked about in the 2017 op-ed was there were a lot of girls that looked like that when I was young because I had grown up in the 70s in the tomboy heyday. I want to go back there because we kind of started out with this uh, controversy today uh, relatively to recent history, but there's a lot of history to this word tomboy that I believe is tied very closely to society's understanding of male and female and gender. Mm -hmm. And so take us back a little bit to this word tomboy. The term um, is a 16th century word that meant that meant rowdy boy. So Tom is a male type, like a Tom cat or a Tom turkey. And then boy is boy. So it described the rowdiest boys. About a oh. hundred years later, it was applied to adult women who were, for lack of a better word, sluts. So women who had a sexual appetite like a man's, right? So it was oh. an insult for an oversexed woman. And not long after that, it started to be applied to naughty little girls who acted more like boys. And it was an insult for a long time. Then in the 19th century, when um, the kind of sphere of domesticity became the ideal for adult women. And when I say women, I mean white middle-class women because all of the kind of fighting right. about what women and girls should do was always concerned with white middle and upper middle-class women because yes. other women had no options, right? In the 19th century, as adult women were, um, you know, reared to be frail, and, you know, wearing their corsets and their bustles and being kind of told that they should occupy the domestic sphere. Um, right. There was sort of declining health. And the idea was, oh, girls, these little white girls, especially need to be healthy so that they can essentially breed white children. I mean, it was connected to eugenics. That was the message. So there was a kind of tomboy movement of let's raise little girls to run around outside and be healthy. And there started to be tomboys in literature that were the most popular um, characters. And that's when the Girl Scouts movement was started. Uh Uh-huh, the Girl Scouts movement. So there was all this kind of like, let's get girls healthy. By the end of the 19th century, it was so successful that there started to be articles saying, let's retire the word tomboy because we don't need this sexist term to describe a a healthy, outdoor, loving girl, which is so interesting because a hundred years later, there were a whole slew of articles saying the exact same thing. The turning point 
that was really powerful in your book in terms of research about what's happened culturally in our lifetimes, let's say, is the fact that you and I grew up at a time when the word was still a pretty comfortable kind of a word. But then there was this hyper-genderalization that occurred in terms of toys, in terms of clothing, in terms of a lot of things that happened. And that happened when? When in the 90s that kind of brought us to where we are today? What's fascinating about what becomes normal in our society is that it's almost always a reaction to what's come before. So we've only been gendering early childhood, that is having girls, to- girls and boys toys and clothes and colors and that kind of thing for about 100 years. 1920 was really the dawn of having separate boys and girls stuff and emphasizing sex differences in kids. And that, and that is because of how we understood sex, gender, and sexuality. So those were all wrapped up in people's minds for most of human history in the West. And you wouldn't want to emphasize the sex of a child because you wouldn't want to think of a little kid as a, as a little man or a little woman, because it would almost be like imposing sexual ideas onto them. So kids right. were dressed according to age, not sex. But then the field of sexology and the field of sex psychology gained more prominence. And there began to be an understanding of homosexuality as a, like a, cat, a category of person, not just something that someone did, but, oh, you can be as a social category, a gay person the psychologists and sexologists were saying, you know, we think it's nurture that creates um, homosexuality. So really emphasize, especially to boys, how to be men from an early age. And that way you can, you won't nurture them into being gay. And that's the beginning of imposing gender onto childhood. And a big piece of that, I believe, is boys getting a much more intense message than girls about don't do anything that's related to girls. I mean, colors or behavior, um, language, whereas girls, I think, had more options. Well, in the West, in, in Europe and America, there's always been a real terror around male femininity and female masculinity is more acceptable depending on how far it goes and depending on the time. That is the opposite in some cultures. So some cultures really understand male femininity and allow for it. I think our kind of puritanism and fear of sexuality has not helped us much in understanding gender, <laughs> gender, sex, mm-hmm. and sexuality in the West. After this gets established, this idea that we should impose gender onto childhood, there are all of these generational waves. So it was not, the 1950s, when we had this great birth of consumer culture, that was the time, the first wave of hypergendering that's really woven into every aspect of childhood, regardless of what class you're from. And, and kids, baby boomers were the first kids who could like recognize the sex of a child by how he looked, by his hair, a young child, by his hair or what clothes. So the he color wore. blanket the baby was wrapped in when they came home right. from the hospital. That's right. That was the beginning of that. But what's interesting is, you know, say you were born in the 1950s and you were reared in the very first generation of hypergendered childhoods. Well, those kids grew up. And in the 1970s, 
there was a movement called non-sexist parenting, which was like, you know, the kind of free to be you and me, let's stop imposing gender stereotypes onto childhood. And I don't think- Let little girls play with trucks. Don't give only dolls to girls. Let boys play with them. But, and that's when we had the tomboy heyday and there were all of these tomboys in the media and masculinity was really encouraged for girls, but femininity was discouraged for everyone. So a great example Mm -hmm. of that is in the Sears catalog, which was, you know, amazon.com analog version, you know, everybody got that. Um, There were boys to girls size conversion charts. So girls could shop in the boys section, but there was no such chart in the girls section. So boys could shop there. So there was a message. Everybody can have access to the masculine regardless of sex, but everyone should reject the feminine. And so then 20 years later, those kids grow up and you start having girl power, which is hyper, hyper, hyper femininity, but it's powerful. Instead of it being the All worst the thing, it's the best and, thing. Yes, it's right. girl power and it's Spice Girls and it's like Xena, the warrior princess. So it's like femininity for women is good because it's strong, but also it's hot, you know. But again, <laughs> it never included boys. There wasn't like, and now boys can also be princesses. So yeah, no, no, no. Don't you, you dare have, go there, boys. Then you go 20 years later, which is, you know, 10 years ago. And what's the generational reaction to that? Well, it's this kind of like, let's explode the gender binary. And and these people who are like in their 20s and 30s today, whether they know it or not, they were the first generation with completely hypergendered childhoods in that there was prenatal sex testing. So before these kids are even born, the gendered path is laid down. There's gendered television, there's gendered, you know, computer programs. I mean, every part of their world, you can Gender reveal parties before the baby was born. 2011, right? 2011 is when that started. So, So they may not know that they're living in a generational reaction, but they are. And where we are today is a lot of young people um, pushing the box that they've been assigned and pushing the boundaries uh, of gender. And perhaps, I mean, do I hear you saying that the box has gotten so narrow that no wonder they're pushing back? Yes, I think so. And I think as we hypergender impose all of this gender onto every aspect of childhood, you know, it became very difficult for a lot of kids to fit into either this hyper feminine or hyper masculine box. So on the Mm -hmm. one hand, the reaction to it is to make more room and to say, you can be anything, you can be any category. But on the other hand, it leaves only the most conforming people to fill those girl and boy boxes. And, and I didn't know that that's what I was commenting on. I didn't know that I was commenting on a clash between trans rights and women's rights between trans activism and feminism. And I didn't know that that was a vicious battle, a battle that is about now coming out and being about sports or medically transitioning children or you know women in female only prisons. And I've steered clear of that because it's, frightening and toxic. And also because I want to focus on kids, it is the same kind of debate. It's like, is freedom 
from gender norms about identity and, and an individual way that you identify yourself or is freedom from gender norms about how we define what's masculine and feminine or how we design, define what's male and female. And there's real conflict there. Right. Um, right. And it's, it's super difficult to talk about, but it is important that we do figure out how to talk about it. You talk to clothing designers, you talk to psychologists, you talk to neuroscientists. I mean, in terms of all of the research of where we are, but you also talked to um, to tomboys uh-huh. or females who de- who defined themselves as tomboys uh, from eight to eighty. Yeah. And what did you hear? What did you learn from them? Well, they had remarkably similar childhoods. I mean, you could hardly tell the difference in terms of how that followed them into adulthood. Mm -hmm. They were wildly variant adulthoods. So there were, you know, people who at puberty feminized and became heterosexual and wore dresses or dressed more femininely or something. Although I didn't find anyone really who, I mean, like nobody wore high heels. No one, no one had gone full feminine. They were all pretty practical because they were physical, right? And that's the stayed with them. There's some research that divides these tomboys into sometimes and always. So sometimes being girls who can like play, sort of play multiple roles and then always being, I'm just really masculine, traditionally masculine all the time. And those, they may have had very similar childhoods. And then at puberty, that's where it changes because at puberty, the kind of always tomboy was like, oh, I'm not going to, I don't want to fit in. I don't want to be that. And depending on what kind of family or culture they were from, that could be very traumatizing for them. Um, And some of them became, if they were older, they had become butch lesbians. And if they were much younger, some of them had transitioned to be trans men. But I think they were essentially the same population. And there were different technologies available to them and different cultural understandings. And you know, the butch lesbians were like happy that they um, had sort of moved through their dysphoria that came at puberty and gotten on the other side of it after many hard years. And the trans men were happy that they had had access to gender affirming care that allowed them to transition. The one thing that I found was that they carried with them a kind of confidence because they had gotten so used to going against the grain and they didn't really need approval. And they also tended to have better jobs because they had gotten comfortable with men and masculinity. One of the pieces of my history is that I am one of the uh, the very first women um, sports journalists who entered male locker rooms. And, uh, it, and I know growing up in a family of seven kids with three brothers was definitely part of me being comfortable with or able to deal with the discomfort of doing that kind of a, a role, but also being a tomboy and, and playing with the boys and, and being comfortable with, with both. So I, I hear you in terms of that, but it absolutely takes courage to resist uh, at, at any point in history, the, the box that society wants to put uh, boys and girls and males and females into. What's your message to people who um, who want to have an open mind but are d- uncomfortable and probably confused? 
when it comes to gender, both the extreme right and the extreme left, they have it wrong, according to me. <laughs> and okay. that is, um, you know, I people on the right don't like what I say because they say men are like this and women are like this. And you're interrupting that. Um, I just did a lot of research for the book I'm working on now called Housewife about the history of hunter gatherers mm. and about these archeologists who went back and did um, sex testing on all of these skeletons that everyone assumed were men because they were master hunters. They just assumed the sex, you know, when, oh. when they excavated these. But now we can actually text, test the sex of the skeletons. And they discovered that many of the great hunters were huntresses and that and that in nomadic societies, uh, women fully participated. Hunting was a communal activity. And mm -hmm. unless- The women were, weren't just back <laughs> gathering berries. They weren't just gathering berries. So this argument on the right, that like, this is what women do and this is what men do. I don't have any room for that. I also worry about the argument on the extreme left that any female who is masculine should be facilitated into the boy category and medicalized. So, mm. you know, I think both of these ideologies are very extreme. Our understandings of gender are always temporally bound and culturally bound. This is how we understand it right now in this culture, depending on your politics. But what I want to say is gender nonconformity is normal and natural and in fact, preferable because there's so much research that kids who buck gender norms, as I say, they get better jobs, they have more self-confidence, you know, if they're supported and understood. So what I would prefer is that we de-emphasize sex and gender, that we focus on it less, that we try to encourage, try to strip the gendering that we imposed onto childhood, try to strip it off and create more room for kids to explore what's marked as masculine and what's marked as feminine. Stop marking the stuff that way and let them develop all of the skills and attributes they need to be healthy adults. I know that you have a sign in your home that says, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. What is your last message maybe to our listeners who, who wanna do that, but it's so doggone hard? Right. And I have that sign, but I'm not saying that I've mastered doing that. But I, I think why that's important is because many people think that our current understanding of gender, sex and sexuality are how things have always been. And it's important to know that this is a developing story and that the way we understand what a boy is like, what a girl is like, what's masculine, what's feminine. That's how, that's that's this moment in time. And one of the reasons I wrote this book and the best part of writing the book for me was learning where my idea of normal came from and how much baggage there was attached to it. I want this story to be ever evolving. Whatever you think you know about gender now, there is always more to learn. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Lisa Selen Davis, author of Tomboy, 
Whenever I think about this topic, uh, I, I like to ask myself simply a question that I learned from leadership expert Marsha Clark, which says, always ask yourself, what else could be true? Never think that we've completely arrived in terms of our understanding. And I'm fascinated by this new book that you're working on now called Housewife, or mm -hmm. that's the theme anyway. Mm -hmm. Can't wait for that one. Thank so you. thank you, Lisa, for being with us. And will you join me in saying, now let's all go. Power, Power up. up. Thanks for joining us at Power Up Women. We hope you'll keep listening and share us with your network. We have over 100 episodes in addition to this one for you to choose from. I'm sure you'll find something that intrigues you. And remember, when one woman rises, we all rise. Make sure you reach back and lift others as you climb. I'm Ann Doyle.